Well, as you remain standing, I invite you to turn with me in a copy of God's Word to Jeremiah chapter 25. Uh, We will read the entire chapter uh, throughout the morning, but we're going to start with just the first seven verses, verses 1 through 7. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 652, Jeremiah 25. Beloved saints, this is God's own word. Uh, Please give your attention to the reading of it. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For twenty Three years, from the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you. But you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then will I do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own harm." Sends the reading of God's word at this point. Let us ask our God to be with us as we spend some time in his word together. Our gracious and merciful God, we know that you are great and greatly to be praised. We long to know you and your attributes, your character, and your works. And it is these you have recorded for us in your word that you have preserved through the ages so that each generation might come afresh and behold your grace, your love, and your power. As we come to your word, open our eyes and our hearts to behold its treasures. Allow us to gaze upon your beauty and your splendor. Humble us, encourage us, and strengthen us in Jesus Christ, whom we meet in your word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as humans, uh, we are incredibly impatient. Uh, Endurance persistence, these are not things that we naturally possess. Uh, They're hard, and we don't enjoy them. And it seems like it's getting harder. My parents and my grandparents' generations uh, typically had the same job their entire careers, worked for the same employer for 30 or more years. My generation typically changes jobs every four years, they say. And my kids' generations, they're saying, won't even work for one employer full-time, but will have a new, fluid uh, way of working, which sounds terrifying to me, but exciting uh, to them. Uh, But we like adventure. We crave excitement. We fear boredom. Where people once feared losing their jobs... We now regularly quit if 
we don't find our job exciting or fulfilling, even if we don't have another job lined up. And it's not just our jobs. We, we make all kinds of decisions based upon the immediate enjoyment rather than the long-term consequences. Good girls notoriously are attracted to bad boys because they're fun and exciting, only to wonder later on why they make such terrible husbands and fathers. We spend everything we earn and then we wonder why we're not prepared for emergencies or retirement. We chase after false gods and then we wonder why they can't save us when we're in need. We have lost the ability to persevere, to keep going, to see the big picture. We struggle to make decisions today based upon future consequences. And what we don't realize is that this problem is really part of our rebellion against God. You see, God, what I want to look at today in Jeremiah 25, God is a faithful and persistent God because he is a God of love who is far more interested in the eternal than he is the fleeting and the temporary. And when we fight against him, we become consumed with the here and now. When we pursue him, we learn to look at what really matters, even if it is a long way in the future. And so as we look at this wonderful passage in Jeremiah 25, these are the things we want to meditate on and look at as we look at Jeremiah's ministry as it, as it hits the halfway point. And I really want to look at three things. First, I want to look at Jeremiah, the persistent prophet. Then we want to look at the persistent God whom Jeremiah serves. And then finally, we want to see how it's God's love that drives his persistence and should shape us and make us more long-suffering, more persevering, more persistent people. That's what we want to look at. Uh, A former president once famously said, uh, the problem with his opponents was not so much that they were ignorant, but that they knew so many things that just weren't so. And uh, there's something to that. And I I don't mean to get into politics or anything like that. I'm thinking more here of the human condition. Our problem really isn't ignorance. It's our unwillingness to listen, to believe, and to submit to the things that we really do know are true. And it's not new. It's a deep part of us. And this is what Israel was dealing with at the time of Jeremiah's ministry, and quite frankly, a long time before that. You see, when they had entered the promised land in the the final days of Moses' ministry uh, to them, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, as they were finally about to take possession of their new home, God's land, God carefully reminded them of all his expectations for those who would live in his land. You see, God is like any other father. He has house rules. Live in my house, you live by my rules. Yeah, I see everybody mouthing it. You know the speech, right? God's land is holy. It's special. And if they want to continue to live in his land, they need to abide by his rules. 
And so he's not vague. He's not unclear. They knew what they were getting into. In fact, right as they entered the land, they got up on two opposing hills in the, in the town of Shechem. And there they stood and recited God's expectations as well as, thank you, yes, the curses for disobeying and the blessings for obeying, keeping God's rules. Their problem wasn't ignorance. It wasn't a lack of information. Their problem was obedience. Their problem was with running the long race, with keeping their focus, not getting distracted by the new and the exciting. Their problem was persistence. And so Jeremiah says, you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. He doesn't say, notice, I haven't, I haven't spoken, I haven't warned you. He says, no, you haven't listened. Although the Lord persistently sent you all the prophets saying, turn now from evil. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them or provoke me to anger. Year after year, warning after warning, plea after plea, God has reminded his people, he has warned them. Their problem wasn't a lack of information. It was a moral problem. Their problem was their desires. They kept intentionally seeking after what was pleasurable over what was right. But isn't that all of us? We all know right from wrong. We all know that life has meaning. We all know that what is lasting is more important than what is fleeting. Our problem isn't a lack of information. We know what we're doing when we take our sense of right and wrong and we work hard to change it to fit our agenda. Even the strongest arguments today against historic morality are what? Based upon a moral sense of what we should be doing. We can't escape it. We can pervert it. We can destroy it. But we can't escape it. It's just a false morality. No one escapes the idea of right and wrong, good and bad. We just all want to be the final judges of what qualifies as one or the other. We try to convince ourselves that what we are doing really is the right road, that it makes sense, that it's good, that we know what we're doing. And then when things go terribly wrong, we all do what? We act surprised and say, why why is life so hard and unfair? Well, it is hard and unfair, but often what we're suffering is simply the consequences of our decisions. To consistently do the right thing is hard and it is painful. Imagine being Jeremiah. He has been preaching to Israel with no visible signs of success for 23 years. I think it's hard to understand and get our heads around. We've been studying the book of Jeremiah together for three months. It's, it's hard to get that the time we've covered in that study qualifies as 23 years of his ministry since he began. 
What were you doing 23 years ago? 23 years ago, I wasn't pastoring this church. I wasn't married. I had no kids. I hadn't even started seminary. Many of you weren't even born. Some of you weren't Christians. 23 years ago, your life was quite different. Imagine if during that time you spent day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, preaching, calling people to repentance. And all you had to show for that was that everyone hated you, you'd been laughed at, beaten, thrown in a pit, left in the stocks, no conversions, no repentance, no fruit to show, nothing by which the world measures success. Would you keep going? What keeps Jeremiah going? I don't think I could do that. I think I would give up. I'd give in. I'd throw in the towel. What kept Jeremiah going gave him persistence. And yet, as persistent as Jeremiah is, there's someone who has been persisting with Israel for a lot longer than 23 years. Look again at verse 4. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. Long before Jeremiah, God sent Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, and a whole host of other prophets. For generations, for centuries, God had persistently been speaking to, warning, pleading with his people to wake up, to change course, to stop playing games, to stop pretending that they don't know what's true, what's right, what's wrong, to stop valuing the temporary over the eternal, what's pleasing over what's good, what's exciting over what's important. Really, the only question is, how long is God willing to wait? Certainly, he can't wait forever. Eventually, he will have to go from warning to punishing. And that's what's going on here in Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah is the last prophet before judgment. His ministry is one of ushering in a time of pain and judgment. This is God's last warning. I want to read a few more verses. We're going to read verse, uh, verses 8 through 14 and then, and then drop down to the end. Starting in verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the people, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant... And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a whore, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. 
Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land, their land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Now drop down with me, if you will, to verse 30. You therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high, and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold, and shout like those who tread grapes against the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. And those pierced by the Lord on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall be dung for all the surface of the ground. And now verse 38. Like a lion, he has left his lair, for their land has become a waste because of the sword of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. These verses portray God as a lion who has been sleeping. So long as he sleeps, they're safe. But when he arises and leaves his lair, then everything changes. When his roar is heard, the time for judgment has come. See, that's our problem, isn't it? We, we, we never know how good we have it until it's too late. If you've ever gotten sick or injured, perhaps you've noticed how much you took for granted until then. Just break a toe or an ankle and see how hard it is to get through the day. Try walking up the stairs when you have pneumonia. Try to make it through a day with a swollen throat or go for a walk around the block with vertigo. Whenever something like that happens to me, I become acutely aware of just how much actually has to go right for what I call normal. A radically altered life is never more than a stumble away. A simple virus could change life as I know it at any time. I'm never more than a hair's breadth away from complete disability. And really, that's just a picture of all humanity. This world lives in constant rebellion against its creator. We thumb our nose at him as if it were a challenge to just see just how far we can press. We live willfully blind to the hair's breadth that stands between us in total calamity. But there will be a day when the lion will roar and all the inhabitants of the earth will give an account. And when this happens, what we consider normal life will be gone in an instant. 
Happiness, verse 10, will disappear. All mirth and joy will be gone. Marriages will be a thing of the past. Millstones will be unnecessary because there will be no wheat to grind. Food will become scarce. And judgment doesn't really surprise us if we're honest. We don't just expect a day to come when all wrongs will be judged. To a certain degree, we crave it. It drives us crazy when we see evil in the world go unpunished. When we see a scam artist cheat families out of their retirements. We want justice. We hate it when when people end up in leadership and oppress the weak and the helpless. We want them to be called to give an account. God's announcement that he won't put up with this forever, that judgment is coming, doesn't really surprise us. Let's read verses 15 through 29. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it, They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup of wrath from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem, the cities of Judah, its kings and its officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as at this day. To Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, all his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz, and to the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dedan, Tima, Buz, and all those who cut the corners of their hair all the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, the kings of Elam, and the kings of Media, all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth, and after them, king of Babylon shall drink. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink and be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? Shall you not be punished? For I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. So much of this passage is is, is terrifying and sobering. It's also welcome. Because verses 19 through 26 read like a quick record of Israel's pain over the centuries. The Egyptians, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and so on. These are, are the people who have mistreated and afflicted and murdered and pillaged God's people. And God is saying their atrocities have not gone forgotten. God remembers with crystal clarity 
The time for waiting has passed. Desolation is coming. Justice can wait, but not forever. No one is safe. And that includes Israel. In fact, according to verse 29, judgment will begin with God's own people because of their sin, their rebellion. Of those who are given much, much is required. God's people will always be held to a greater accountability. God even lays before them what his plan is. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, will come and carry them away into captivity and they will be slaves for 70 years. If 23 years seems long, 70 years is almost unimaginable. Almost. There are only a handful of people in this room who have lived that long. Seventy years is a long time to be enslaved. Someone could be born, live a relatively long life, and die in that time and know only slavery. It's a lot of time to think, to reflect on what brought them to that point, what went wrong. So what are the questions you would encourage them to wrestle with while in captivity? What are the good questions to ask yourself when everything goes wrong? What are the most pressing questions in life, more important than what should I wear or where are we going to go on Friday night? Here are my questions. Why the patience in the first place? Why didn't God... Just bring judgment the second our rebellion started. What's his end game? Or, why does judgment start with the people of God? Surely there are others who have done worse. Why does he start with his friends and not his enemies? What's he playing at? What's his end game? Or, why only 70 years? It's not that 70 years is short, but... It's not permanent. So why temporary judgment? What's his endgame? If there's one thing that's clear in this passage from everything that God is saying, it's this. He has a plan. He has a goal. It's all headed somewhere. All the facts, all the details only make sense if he has something in mind down the road. All of this is headed somewhere. Persistence always is headed somewhere. Those who have no goals, no plans, have no need for persistence. It's only those who have an end in sight that keep going when things get hard. It's only those who hope to end someplace better that persevere through hardship, pain, and trials. Persistence is always driven by an end goal. So what's God's end goal? What drives him? I think it's the same thing that drives all persistence. Ultimately, it's love. I don't mean to suggest that all persistence is driven by the love of the right thing, but all persistence is driven by the love of something. Sometimes that's the love of money. Sometimes it's the love of power. 
or fame, but it's always the love of something. For God, it's the love of his people. It might not have been clear the day that God's people first heard this pronouncement of judgment, but consider what we know it had to mean. God says that he will turn his cup on all the inhabitants of the earth, verse 29. From one end of the earth to another, no one will be able to escape being pierced with the Lord's judgment. Verse 33. All would have to drink his cup of wrath, verse 15. But you and I know that God would one day take on flesh and blood and inhabit this earth. He would walk this world and become man, one of us. How can he do that? How can he be an inhabitant of this earth? and not subject himself to the wrath that he holds for all inhabitants of the earth. He knew what that would mean. It would mean that he would be pierced with the judgment of heaven. He would drink the cup of wrath. He would suffer all that we deserve for our rebellion. He would persist through pain and suffering for some greater goal, some greater end. And that greater end is our salvation. This has been his end goal from the beginning. It's never been our destruction. It's always been our salvation. And that's why he patiently warned. That's why he delayed judgment And ultimately, that's why he would send his people into slavery in Babylon for 70 years to drive them to repentance. Even the judgment he brought on his own people was driven by his desire for their good. It was driven by his love. Persistence always is. And so his love, his persistence, is made most clear and most visible In Jesus Christ. He's the embodiment of persistent love. You see, the secret of Jeremiah's persistence, the reason he could keep going for 23 years, is because he belonged to a persistent God who was driven by a persistent love. God was not just speaking through Jeremiah, his prophet. He loved Jeremiah as his own child, and so he was changing and shaping him to be more like the God who loved him. And the same is true for you. God is shaping you like a potter shapes clay. He's forming you. He's using his word and his discipline. The people in your life to make you more like him. It's a good and it's a noble goal, but it's not an easy one. But it is a good one. There will be times along the way when you will want to give in, you will want to give up, you will want to throw in the towel. But you belong to a persistent God who is driven by a persistent love. 
And he's not known for quitting. Because he always pursues what is good over what is easy. And that's the reason why Jeremiah could keep going for 23 years and longer. Like I said, this is halfway. It's not because he was strong. We've seen his weakness. We've seen his frailty and his desire to give up. He's pled with God, let me quit. The reason he's able to keep going was he belonged to a God who never gives up. And that God is at work in him. The very things that made Jeremiah want to give up are actually shaping him and transforming him. The very things that will make you want to throw in the towel will shape you and teach you that what really matters is what is eternal. And while you wait for God, sorry, you have, he has left you a reminder to help you understand this important lesson. The Bible says that as often as we receive the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death until he comes. There's a waitingness to the Lord's Supper. But what does it mean to proclaim his death? It's so much more than proclaiming that he died. It's proclaiming why he died. He died in our place. He died in order to save us. It was painful. It was excruciating physically and spiritually. It was the hardest thing he ever had to endure. So why did he do it? Why didn't he give up and take the easy way out? He told us he could call down legions of angels to deliver him if he desired. He endured because he loves you. And the cross was the road to get where he wanted to go. See, his end game was to be with you forever in heaven. And so he did what was necessary to get there. This is what we proclaim when we come to this table. We confess that as surely as we eat the bread and we drink the wine, that we are not alone. That there is a persistent God and we are His and He is ours. And He will not fail. He is is with us, He is at work in us and He is making us more like him. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this gift from our God this morning. And please bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your persistent love. We thank you that you never give up, you never give in, and you never fail. You always accomplish what you've set out to do. We thank you that you are not driven by insecurity, that you're not consumed with pleasure, and you are not controlled by the temporary. And we want to be more like you. We, we are grateful that our endurance does not depend on our strength. We praise you that our confidence is in you. And we thank you that you are shaping us, that you are forming us, you are preparing us, so that we might not be consumed in judgment. Help us to greet what you bring into our lives as that which will help us grow, that which will make us more like you. Amen.